Welcome to another episode of Sustainable Goat. I'm Steve Cassingham, and I interview the greatest of all time in sustainability from the past, present, and into the future. In this episode, I talk with Katie Munnings, co-driver of the Andretti United Extreme E team. I've been a Formula One racing fan for my entire life, and Extreme E is a new racing series that is fully electric, and it's a rally series that races in areas all around the world affected by climate change. They've also converted a ship to transport the cars, but also conduct research along the way. It's a really exciting series with an incredible mission, and Katie, as a driver, is amazing. So let's dive into the conversation with Katie. I'd love to just start with kind of what a little bit of your history is in driving, because you didn't start as most drivers do at five years old. No. I didn't. No, I was, yeah, very unconventional. I guess it's because I wasn't looking for a career in motorsport. Whereas if I was going into Formula One, you know, it's kind of not, I don't want to say decided by the parents, but you know, it's kind of in the blood and encouraged and you go karting and you'd be in a world championship by the time you're eight or whatever, which is actually really funny because I'm really different to Timmy because Timmy started with karting and he did the whole scene. He was competing against some other car and F1 drivers in single seater stuff. So I really don't want to go go karting with him because I'm really competitive. I know, no, no, he's just going to absolutely thrash it. Yeah, I'm actually really bad on a go-kart. I've probably been like three times in my life. So I, I, that was not how I started. So I basically, so my dad, he used to do some rallying. And then he was instructor at a rally school, at London Rally School and Browns Hatch Rally Schools as I was growing up. So I would, as a kid, I'd go and sit in the passenger side when he was driving and just be terrified, but got kind of addicted to the adrenaline of that. Then he had a, a motorsport entertainment company, which was like quad biking and buggies, probably quite similar to the extreme weed cars, to be honest with you, that kind of off-road stuff. And I, yeah, I, I, that was just what I grew up around. I'd come home from school and there'd be events on and they'd be going around the fields. And yeah, I was just, I was a bit of a tomboy completely outside all the time. Mum said you literally couldn't get me inside to eat dinner. I just wasn't interested about being inside. So I guess I was kind of training without knowing I was training. It was just fun for me until I got to 17. And then I went to a, a rally test with Peugeot in France off the side of one of the mountains, which was Mont Blanc. I was sat next to the French champion at the time and he took me out for some laps and I was just in awe of how he could drive. It was like a new world to me. And as a competitive person, you know, you always want to see if you're able to do that as well and kind of compare what you can do to them. And obviously I was way off it, but I was really keen to listen and learn. And they kind of liked that. And I was working with their engineers pretty much all day. And we decided that I would try and get some sponsorship to go to the European Championship for the following year. So I worked quite hard on that and managed to get some. And then, yeah, I was in the European Championship for about four years there. And then I moved into the World Championship before COVID and then COVID kind of locked everything down and I was kind of sat at home thinking what am I going to do next you know when we go back will there be a world championship I didn't it was like a you know a really weird time I think for everyone and it was also the same time that I was kind of sat at home and especially in the UK I don't know if it was the same for you in America but where everyone has stopped commuting so much you've seen pollution mm-hmm. dropping so much and like animals returning to cities and you've seen on the news that people could see the mm-hmm. Himalayas but they've never seen them before and all yeah. these And it made me think, like, quite question my career, which felt like a very selfish career. You know, I'm I'm driving cars fast. I'm not actually helping anyone. And then I heard about Extreme E and Extreme E got in contact and I didn't believe it. I thought it was completely, it sounded like the way that they were telling me it would happen. They were saying, oh, there'll be like a cargo ship, which will travel around the world and they'll take the cars and then we're going to offload in the Amazon and then we're going to race in the Amazon and then we're going to plant trees in the Amazon. And I was thinking like, this sounds like a movie. It doesn't sound like a race championship. So I actually said no a few times. Really? Because we didn't have anything to go by. It's easy to believe yeah. it now because we've seen it. But at the time, 
there was no teams involved, no other drivers that I knew of. But anyway, I entered into the driver's program and thought, well, I've got nothing to lose. I'll see if some teams contact me. And pretty much instantly, uh, Andretti United contacted me and they were one of the first teams. I think me and Timmy were the first drivers to be announced, actually. And wow. at that point, none of the Formula One drivers had taken teams. So we really didn't mm-hmm. know who we'd be up against. So then it was really interesting seeing it all unfold. And obviously, it ended up being a massively competitive championship. <laughs> so when you were young, I mean... You obviously didn't go to your first test without ever really practicing and driving any type of car around. When did you feel like you kind of had, I don't know, a gift, if you will? I mean, it it does definitely take hard work for sure. But I would imagine when you got behind the wheel for the first time, it was kind of probably a freeing experience for you in a way. Like when, how did that start of that, that feeling of like, man, I really kind of want to do this. I think it was, I was really encouraged by my dad. So he'd been a rally instructor and he'd sat next to, I mean, he was really quick in his time. He was competing against guys that went on to become world champion and he would be, sm- uh, you know, matching their times, but he just didn't have the budget to do it. He could never find the sponsorship to get behind him. And then he had kids and he says that's where it all went wrong because <laughs> we, we grew up wanting to do it. But actually, I think he, he always said to me that it was, there was like one time when we just moved to the family farm where they were starting this events company and there was a woodland next to it, which was quite a massive space and fields and everything and he said I had this little kids quad at the time like a tiny little quad I was about seven and he obviously had like adult quads for these events and he said there was like an emergency in the wood you know one of the quads had broken down and he needs to go and replace it so he jumped on his quad and like zoomed down the woods as fast as he could and he's obviously a really good driver and a good rider so he was just in and out of the trees through like you know water and everything to try and get to them and he had no idea that I was following him because like, me being the tomboy, I was like, oh yeah, I can go and help dad. So I jumped on my quad and went after him. And he said he like halfway around the woods, he thought he had a quad behind him and he turned around and there's me like hanging onto the back of him, completely sideways drifting at whatever age I was. And so he, he always says that from there, he thought, wow, okay, she's got something. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I obviously don't remember that. But from then, I think I've been really competitive in whatever I did. I mean, I went into athletics, netball, everything I was doing it. I just wanted, I've always wanted to kind of be an athlete from that sense so I kind of went through phases of loads of different sports and then when I found one that gave me the adrenaline of motorsport I was really excited so what does it take I guess for people who aren't as aware of what a racing driver actually does and what what they have to go through in order to not only mindset physical I mean it's it's not an easy sport to do it's not just you know you push the gas pedal down and you you go what was it kind of like for you when you decided to start taking it more seriously was it kind of uncharted territory in a way where you kind of were like, man, I, I'm ready for this. I'm competitive, but you know, there's a lot to learn. I think the biggest thing for me and the biggest challenges I had were mentally. I think because it's it's not a sport that's accessible. So it's not like tennis. You can't just pick up a racket and go and practice or football where if you've got something to practice, you can do it. In rally, if we want to practice, you have to, we're racing on public roads. So if you want to simulate a natural environment for us, you know, a tarmac rally, for example, you've got to go to France, shut a road and pay the council to close the road, a public road, pay, pay police and ambulance and everything else that you'll need, rent a car, all of these sorts of things. You're looking at like, you know, 10,000 euros for a day minimum, you know, even for a race weekend, it's like upwards of 60K. So it's really expensive. And that's sort of for, for the kind of mid, mid-level mid car. That's not even for the world championship level. So I think the barrier for me was always knowing that there's going to be someone with more budget. And I was kind of running on a shoestring budget. I was literally in the European championship. I was taking, my teammate would come in, take his tires off and that were going to go in the bin because he'd use them. And they go on my car as new because I didn't have budget to buy new tires. So I'd be going to events with that mindset. Also knowing I couldn't crash because if you crash, not only have you got to check that you and your co-driver are okay, but the car 
most of the time you'll have to pay the full insurance to put on the car, which is upwards of 15k as well. And then that might be your budget for the next race. So sometimes you get to event one of the year if you've had an accident and you know that you then can't compete in the next three events and you've barely even got started. So I think mentally it's a really difficult one. And I think that, you know, the budget was always the, uh, the hardest part for me in my career to kind of get off the ground. And it's something I still struggle when people ask me how to get into motorsport. You do struggle to answer it because it's still not that accessible. And it's something that I would love to become a lot more affordable and accessible for people. But yeah, I think we're, we're still working on that one as a support. I think from the other side, it's kind of the fear element. And, you know, when I've had some big crashes in the European Championship, I think it's a real community around you. And I used to have texts from the guys that were like, I was a junior or whatever, kind of, you know, you wouldn't think that the people at the front are really paying much attention. But if I had a big crash, I'd have the guy that's leading the race send me a text and say, have a goldfish mind for tomorrow and forget that accident, move on, come back, jump in the car. And I think those kind of things really stick with you and give you the confidence to keep going. And also your family or whoever you surround yourself with, your community, if you've got some people that are supporting you and giving you affirmations that, you know, you're doing well and that I think you really need that to keep going, especially in the hard times, because it's, it, is a, it is a really unforgiving sport. It's one of those ones where when it rains, it really pours. Yeah. What was kind of one of those experiences for you? Because I think I've always been fascinated from a mindset perspective when it comes to athletics is because I did a lot of sport growing up as well. And it's, you have a a limit that you're always walking of, is it too far? Is it not enough? And especially when you have old tires and you can't wreck the car, I mean, you kind of have to be very mindful of that limit, whereas maybe somebody else can just send it and just see what happens. What was that kind of like for you? And and was there a struggle where you're like, oh my gosh, can I do this? Yeah, I think it's, to be honest, I I feel like that never sort of ends really. It's one of those things that you kind of, you feel like you're getting somewhere and then bam, someone comes out of nowhere and it's like, oh, I'm able to do this and this and this, or I've got a massive race program. And you think, how are you doing that? So it's one of the, I think the way I, overcome those issues was just mentally like admitting that you're not control what you're in control of and you know I work with sports psychologists on that and focus on what you're in control of what can you do today that's going to better put your performance tomorrow does that mean you need to go and get fitter does it mean you need to work on the sponsorship what you know what are you able to do and I think accepting and being grateful for the fact that I'm able to be there at all was a massive thing for me because you know it's really easy to get bogged down in a sport and think oh, you know, I know the guy that's running two cars in front of me, he's got this much budget and he's done this many days testing or he's got that engine. That runs all the way up to world championship level. You know, we could look at those competitions that I'm racing in this year and I could say exactly the same thing. I could say, oh, you know, these people that I'm competing against are doing this championship and this championship, which means they're going to get that much more driving. And It's not a healthy way as an athlete to be. And I think that probably does translate to many other sports. But if, you know, you're an athlete looking at it and you're coming back from an injury and you're thinking, oh, my competitor's not injured, they're going to have the upper arm or whatever. That is a really good kind of lesson for life is just stay in your own lane mentally otherwise you're just going to get really overwhelmed and waste a lot of energy I think that's the main thing is just focusing your energy where it's useful for you I love that and so so when you took you know a chance and went hey I'm going to jump into this extreme e what was that process like I mean when you first saw the car when you first met Timmy like was it whoa this is a whole new world this is so exciting it wasn't to be honest because we it was weird it was really weird process because it was like in COVID. So these deals are being done over the phone. I remember when Roger, my team, my team principal phoned me from the first, for the first time, I kind of had an email from Roger, who's obviously the Formula A team principal as well, saying, can I, can I speak to you about this new championship? And I was like, oh yeah, I sent him my details. And it was like a Friday night, he's in America. So it was a Friday night over here. And I, I was like outside in the middle of lockdown, doing nothing, having a barbecue with my family. And then he started going off about this full race program for the following year and the plans of the team and everything. And it was quite surreal because to me, we sort of hadn't left the house, you know, the, the weekly highlight was going shopping in like the supermarket 
And then suddenly we were talking about traveling to the Amazon in Greenland. And yeah, I think there was a lot of unknowns about it. Luckily, we managed to, you know, make it happen with travel and everything. But it was a weird time because I'd obviously signed up for the championship before I'd seen the car. I also, they didn't tell me and they didn't tell Timmy who the other driver was. I didn't think they wanted to influence the decision in case we hated each other. Luckily, we didn't. <laughs> it works really well, but it was literally a case of like, we both signed up. And then I think maybe four days before they announced it, they told us who the other driver was. And then, so we sort of had some WhatsApp saying, hey, you're right. <laughs> that was kind of it. And then we we were told that we had a test in France. So this is kind of maybe when we could travel again. I don't know, was it was September, something like that last year. And yeah, so we had a high car. He His flight landed before mine. So he just picked me up from the airport and that was it. We'd met each other for the first time and that was it. We were like, you know, then racing together for the following year without having met each other. And luckily it was one of those instant friendships because we were bonding over how hangry we both were at the time. Like we both have to eat every two hours, otherwise we just drop. And so we ended up driving to this test, which was, it was a couple of hours away from the airport. We went through this really tiny village and we ended up coming across, you know, when you go into this place where they look a bit dodgy from the outside and you walk in, (laughs) And it's a really authentic French restaurant with a guy that's cooking the meat in front of you. We ended up having this really cool lunch and getting to know him and yeah, hearing about his family and completely nothing to do with racing. We just became really great mates, which we've kind of taken through the rest of the year. That's awesome. So how does that work when you, yeah, when you in this series, I mean, for those that don't know, you have a female driver, you have a male driver, and that is the team. How important is it in this sport that you you have a really good teammate because usually in other racing your teammate is actually kind of like the guy you're trying to beat on the other side of the garage this is a very different approach to be honest I was quite nervous about it because I know historically I'm probably the worst for it as well as as a driver you're quite you you know it's an individual sport so naturally I think everyone's ego's there and that's who you are and you want to be the fastest and you might only care about your time and not care what your teammate's doing and that was one thing that I was worried about is you know is my teammate going to be kind of such a, a famous driver and not speak to me and everything like that and actually it was the complete opposite with Timmy he's been incredible I mean I basically went and moved into his town in February when UK went into lockdown we were out in Dubai training in the sand dunes and then I was going up to Sweden but I couldn't come back to the UK because I was going to have to spend you know that time in in a hotel quarantine so I said okay Timmy I'm basically going to come and rent an apartment in your town which is a tiny town in Sweden so I did and um, I lived there for a bit and you know I'd go around to his house and he's got this pizza oven and here his wife and son would make me pizza and it was like really incredible and so I think it's I think every team's unique and every team not just with the drivers here but you know with the mechanics engineers managers all of that sort of stuff it all has a different vibe and I think that our vibe has always been one of kind of family and friendship which I've really that's kind of the the environment that I perform well on, under pressure so mm-hmm. I think in that sense I felt really comfortable there and I'm really happy it was that way because obviously you know signing up to a new program and not having met the team you just don't know do you but it was one thing that I remember when I was in the first Cool with Roger, he he kept mentioning was the word family on the phone call, which kind of resonated mm-hmm. well with me. So, yeah, and to be honest with you, I just think yeah, Timmy, I would like if I could, I'd follow him around extreme me because <laughs> just I think he's amazing. You know, work, working with him, and I think we both get on well. We've got to the point now where we kind of know each what each other's thinking without having to say it to each other, which I think is so mm-hmm. important. You're living in each other's pockets. You're having to if I crash or if he crashes, then the other one, it's their weekend's ruined as well. And it's, you know, it's such a funny dynamic. It's To me, it's probably a bit more normal because I've had a co-driver before in my car. So it's been a team sport from that sense because in rally, obviously you're sharing that with the navigator. But I think from him coming from rally cross, you know, when we were testing for the first time, he couldn't get used to me sat next to him in the car. And he said, it was just so weird having someone sat next to him. And I couldn't get used to not having someone sat next to me. So we both had our own things that we've been learning on this process. But yeah, I think it's, 
it's worked well. I think, yeah, the bonding over the hanger has definitely set the tone for <laughs> how it was going to be for the rest of the year. That's amazing. And so when you first drove the car, I mean, what was it like? For those that don't know, it doesn't look like really any other any other rally car. It's electric. How does that change for you as a driver? I mean, what was it like driving it for the first time? To be honest with you, when we went to that first test in France, so Timmy had tested it the year before he'd been part of the suspension development, I think him and his brother. So he'd driven it before and he kept saying to me, oh, it's, it's easier than it looks. When you when you see it, you're going to think, oh my God, what have I signed up to? But he said, when he said it is easier to drive. So when I saw it for the first time, I had to keep that in my mind because if you ever get the chance to see one in real life, they're just massive. They're way bigger than you think they'll look. And the problem is where we're racing on TV, we're racing in places like, you know, the middle of the Saudi Arabian desert or the green and ice sheet. So places that don't give any perspective to the car at all. Like Mm -hmm. you try and park this thing. It's impossible. (laughs) And I remember looking at it and thinking, I'm just never going to be able to drive. Like, how could you even try and make that slide? And, and I remember I I went with him. So we started this test and I I went in the passenger seat because he'd obviously driven it before. And he said, okay, I'll just do some slow laps. Like I'll, try and introduce things to you on the car the first laps I'll just do really gently and like let you know how it works and he just went off the start line as soon as he accelerated he said sorry I can't drive it slowly and he was just flat out and, and I was like oh brilliant and I remember being t- terrified because he was just throwing it all over the place it felt like it was going to roll it's this massive nearly two-ton car 2.3 meters wide 400 kilowatts which I think is the equivalent of 500 600 horsepower something like that so it's really quick and then we switched over and I was like okay I'm gonna take it gently I'm I, you know I'm definitely not gonna go do anything silly and I started driving it and I was like oh hang on I know what you mean you've got to drive this fast and it just it feels like a race car from that side like it feels is it I always say whenever anyone like I had a poncho in Saudi Arabia and everyone's like oh how did you drive like that I'm like at the end it really feels a lot easier when you're driving it compared to you when you're looking at it like the cameras make us feel like heroes but it really wasn't that hard it just feels like another race car to drive so yeah I, I think it was it's always a classic thing is and I think that answers your question earlier like is, is it talent or is it you know you're nurturing it and I think if you've got a general feeling for driving you're able to jump in a lot of different cars and quite click with it quite quickly obviously fine-tuning it obviously takes time and development and work with your engineers but the general feeling of it and the kind of okay now I can breathe again a relaxation comes quite quickly mm-hmm. so the first race what was that like you know kind of going okay now we have we have to perform this is a little bit different this is not testing we're familiar with the car it's time to race I mean are you the type where you put on the helmet and everything kind of just goes quiet and you're just kind of in your zone do you kind of have to get yourself in that zone and especially for the first race if you want to walk me through like kind of where it was and what you were doing what was that like for you so the first race was in Saudi Arabia in the desert. And this was quite funny because me and Timmy hadn't driven on sand before. And so <laughs> we're looking at this and thinking, okay, so we're both quite good on gravel and tarmac, but now we're going to the sand dunes and we have no idea how to do that. I've watched Dakar on TV before, but my competitors are champions of Dakar. And, you know, the guys from America are obviously living in the desert in the sand dunes out there as well. So we said, okay, we need to go and get some experience. So it was quite cool, really. Me and him literally went to the desert in Dubai for a week with a co-driver from Dakar car and we got two Polaris razor buggies and we were just driving every day drive in drive out of this resort literally in the buggies into the sand dunes we I mean it was carnage we we kind of broke down in the middle of camel farms and it's like in the 40 degree heat and me and Timmy are trying to change belts on like these with camels coming and nibbling up like it was just the most surreal experience it was so much that was good team building it was really good fun and so then we felt like we had a bit more knowledge going into Saudi so we kind of ticked that off the list we knew how to drive on sand so then we were like right okay so now how do we race these things and no one knew really and when we got there it was really heavy dust which kind of limited the first race I think from that side 
but it was coming back to that thing of controlling what you can control and normally you can do a lot of prep for you know when you look at formula one they've like learning the circuit and we're not allowed to see anything until the track walk so you really can't control that much and also the format was changing so much and it did change so much throughout the year just you know as natural with, with a season one of a, a new sport it's going to evolve and it's and it's good that it does that and it's good that it's not kind of stagnant just because it's a rule i'm really glad that the championship are quite fluid like that to make sure it's good viewing and good sporting format for everyone so things were literally changing overnight and then we went into a time trial instead of a head-to-head races for qualifying and yeah it was it was I just remember being a really surreal experience like we were staying in this town because it was in the middle of nowhere in the desert and we were staying right next to a mosque so at like 4 45 I think we'd have the call to prayer wake us up in the morning and that would literally be our alarm we'd be going to the track with that and like it was just surreal like where we were staying it was so so remote so remote like I the, the places we were staying I didn't have a towel like some people didn't have water, running water it was incredible it was just so humbling to be there and you really felt like you were immersing yourself in the desert from that sense it was really cool it was a really cool life experience and a real adventure as well as a team and from the racing side yeah we it was a bit of carnage I think Timmy picked up a puncher in one of the qualifying runs which then the wheel was basically off and I had to do a full lap trying to crab up a sand dune and go over the top and it was a really steep I don't know if you've seen shots of Saudi Arabia there was a really steep drop and I'm going up it. I'm going up sideways because I can feel. I mean, the commentators hadn't picked up yet that I had a puncture, but apparently, the I think the Ganassi team saw it when I was in the switch zone, and they were sort of in the garage with Alejandro, who runs the championship. And Alejandro was saying, "Oh, do we need to change? Do we need to stop Katie from driving? Is this unsafe?" And they're like, "No, no, no, let her go. It's good TV and all the rest of it." Because you know we drive like that <laughs> in the valley. My engineers were saying, "There's a shot of Timmy going like that, like he, he like waving his hand, like he's annoyed, but he wasn't. Apparently, he was saying to the engineer, just let her drive, let her just drive.'" <laughs> so I've been told to push by my engineers I'm going up this sand dune but the whole week they've been testing it and they've been saying okay you've got to make sure you go straight over this sand this sand dune because you don't want to go over with an angle because if you dig and roll you're just it's just 500 foot down and I remember thinking it's impossible to drive this car straight <laughs> I've got three wheels on it and I managed to just get away with it but I was like sliding off at an angle and then I managed to just look it straight just the moment I went over and yeah I got some good footage from that but I think the final I'm trying to think what happened yeah so it was a battle between Timmy and Johan which put I think us in second so we managed a podium on our first race which was quite fun but yeah I've, I've really enjoyed it actually as it's gone through the rest of the year because it's been yeah it's been a, a big challenge a lot's changed but I think also as we've evolved I'm hoping that season two will be a lot more kind of established as we expect it to be with season one you know a lot of the things that we're working on with the car in terms of re- reliability and stuff I think it will be a lot more about the pure racing next year so I think we're still working towards the peak of it Definitely. And in each of these locations, I mean, part of the racing format is that you guys meet with scientists and you guys are able to learn more about that specific area. So in each different place, for those that don't know, you're in the Amazon, you're in ice, you're on the beach. I mean, you're in all different areas that are different areas of conservation. What has that process been like for you in terms of the learning side of going to all these different parts of the world? I mean, you mentioned not having a towel in the desert. You know, you kind of have to, you're immersed in that area. Yeah, it's been uh, bigger than I expected because when, when I mean, you see these kind of things pop up or when championships do things with science and legacies, sometimes it's literally a case of, oh, I'll take a photo standing next to this tree and we'll post it on social media and tick that box. And I was kind of, I was nervous that that would be the case, but actually it was the complete opposite. So we went to Saudi, I think three days before we needed to be there for the racing schedule and we're all staying on the boat and we literally immersed ourselves. We had like 
two hour lectures we had three back to back in the evening that would go on till 10 o'clock at night and then we're up the next day and we're off on the beach just doing clear ups and we're learning about the sea turtles and I was loving it almost taking notes on it and our scientists were really lucky that we had this scientific committee so the one of the guys that's kind of on the ground with us all the time is a guy called Professor Carlos Duarte and he is number one marine scientist in the world and he's number 12 rank number 12 um, in, for climate change influence from a scientist point of view. So he is actually choosing our locations based on, so I think him and Alejandro will sit down and they'll talk about the biggest issues that we're facing in terms of climate change globally. And then they'll look at the kind of legacy programs that we could do and how our sponsorship from the championship could go into those with local communities and obviously helping the environment. And then they'll kind of develop the racing from there. So it's, it's cool because it's sort of the other way around. It's very much legacy focused. So when we go to that, and I asked him, you know, I was in Greenland and I was on the way back from, we'd visited the ice sheet where we were taking samples of the black ice. And just to quickly tell you what that was about, because that was quite cool. Mm-hmm. When you look at it from a plane, like the, the ice looks like it's starting to turn black, like the top layer. You know, when snow melts, I don't know if you, you probably don't because you have good snow in America, but because <laughs> snow in the UK, when it melts, it goes all gravelly and black. That's kind of what it looked like. And he was saying that they we, we were taking samples of this for them to test in the lab on the boat. But they were actually saying that he thinks it's carbon from wildfires that have blown over from North America that has settled on the ice. And so it showed me how interconnected the whole world was. And that was quite shocking because you would never think that the, the wildfire carbon would be melting the ice sheet faster because obviously the black color on it is now absorbing more heat from the sun. So it's melting Mm. it faster. There's a real issue that they're having up there. But anyway, on the bus on the way back, I said to him, is this, you know, are we actually making a difference? Like we've got these samples and we're meeting these local community and we're up here doing some media work, but is it actually making a difference, you know, to our environment? And he said that it's opened doors for him as a scientist who's been knocking on government's doors and trying to get opportunities to, you know, there was a specific research project that he'd been trying to do for years, but hadn't had any responses back from the local authorities. And as soon as Extreme E went with obviously uh, a bit more power, with budget, with, you know, broadcast deals, with all of these sorts of things from a sporting side, he said that the door was open to him and he was able to carry out the work that he'd been trying to do scientifically there for 10 years in a matter of a month. So I think that was important for me to hear because then you really feel like, okay, this is not just for show. Yeah. How does that feel for you? I mean, you you mentioned as a racing driver that driving around and not making any impact and now you're in a series that you know, it's impact focus and you get to do what you love. How does that feel for you to be in that position? Me, do you know what? I think this is one of the things I love about doing it with Timmy as well is we just pinch ourselves in that moment. We're just saying, how lucky are we? And actually, sometimes you forget that you're racing. <laughs> it's really hard to switch back into that zone at the end of the week because I suddenly feel like I'm on a gap year. But you'll be stood there in the most surreal locations and we'll just say to each other, like, look at where we are. Look at where our job has brought us now. How lucky are we to be experiencing this? And I think that was the whole point of it. You know, there's kind of two ways. The, the point of us going and doing this is to be absorbing as much information as we can and then sharing it with our followers. So I've been trying to make little vlogs of all the legacy stuff that I've been posting on my YouTube to try and just share what I've been learning because so much of it, I I think people are, would genuinely be interested in and just don't know. I mean, I did not learn enough. I'm going on a tangent here, but I didn't learn enough about climate change at school. And some of the stuff that I'm learning, I'm like, people don't know this. People need to know that. Be like, if, if we did nothing in 2050, New York would be underwater. People don't know that. Like, that's not that far off. That's, that's you know, 20 years or whatever. So. Yeah. I think it's incredible the work that the kind of scientists have dedicated their life to. And it feels a lot less selfless now as an industry for me. Yeah, seriously, that that's really incredible. And what a cool experience to be able to do that as a racing driver to really 
push that narrative forward in a way that, you know, people are going to be attracted to the sport because it's entertaining. They're really cool looking cars. It's an incredible championship of really, really amazing drivers and teams. And then you have this whole other layer that the fact that nobody actually is at the races. I mean, a lot of people think racing, big crowd. There's nobody there. Everything's on TV broadcast. And then you have a ship that's doing everything that is completely carbon neutral. So the ship part of it and the actual transportation between races, I mean, have you been able to be a part of that process and how that works? I mean, I know you've been on the ship a bit. It seems pretty cool as a ship. Oh, it's not bad. Yeah, it's a very flash ship. It's pretty cool. So we actually, so we stay on there for some races where we can. So if it's possible for the, the boat to dock close enough to the racetrack, that we do that. We do just stay there. But obviously when we're at places like the desert and stuff, it's too far to dock. But yeah, I've been on the ship a lot. And even when it was in the UK before it set sail last year, we did some filming on it. And it's really, it is really cool to learn. And I think one of the coolest things is it's got a science laboratory and they actually have taps that are literally connected to the, the, the pipes go straight down at the bottom of the boat into the seawater. So at any point, the scientists can take water samples by just turning a tap on up in the lab. Now I completely nerds out over that. I love that. And that was actually what they were doing. So when we left the ship, I think it was in Greenland or maybe it was, yeah, I think it was when, when it went from Greenland to Sardinia, there was a scientific crew of about 10 people that lived on the boat the whole way. And they were taking samples every day, day and night. Um, and there was something specifically that they were researching to do with climate change on that path from Greenland to Sardinia. And they were doing all of their research along the voyage. And then I was part of some of the discussions at COP26 recently with the our, our scientists was leading. And I know that they're actually hosting a lot of talks with young activists on the boat in between races as well. So they're, they're doing a lot more research outside of Extremely, but using that kind of facility as a base. And I think, yeah, so I think there's loads going on, probably way more than I know about. But there's a really cool account to follow. A girl called Izzy. It's called It's Izzy Official, I think is her Instagram. And she's the impact correspondent for Extremely. So she actually has lived on the boat since it set sail nine months ago now every day she's giving an update so she'll be chatting because there's 50 crew that live on the boat obviously to sail it around so she'll be chatting to them every day she'll be telling us about the local area she gets off and she does more a lot more legacy work than than what we do so it's really cool to hear it from her as well that's super cool and so what has been your favorite place to go in in this series so far Oh, I'm going to say green and just because we won. Yeah, <laughs> I wanted to dive into that too. I was like, wow, you know, you guys have been able to win a race this season and what that was like too, but. Yeah, oh, well, I combine the both the, both of those questions. Yeah, I mean, it was incredible. I think looking back, it's, it's always got the best vibes, isn't it? I think it was fun also because where we were in Greenland, it was so remote. We were literally all staying on the boat, whereas, you know, sometimes you're all a bit spread out all over the place if, if you have the opportunity. Like in Sardinia, it's an island, so people are coming in and out and leaving straight after the race, whereas Greenland, we were all there. And so we had a really nice dinner after the race. And, you know, the, Izzy is also a DJ, so we had a DJ on the boat, and it was a really nice atmosphere. And I think being there and actually, I was there a bit before the race and just speaking to, the, like, meeting local people and learning how they live. It's like a very much a hunter kind of society you hunt your own food and it was like I've never been anywhere like that before in my life but it was actually really kind of surreal and serene as well like I don't know the air was just different I've never like that far north I'd never been so I think just because it was something amazing I mean on my bucket list is the Amazon I can't wait for that next year I wanted to go this year obviously and Patagonia as well some of the locations that got cancelled because of travel but yeah, I mean, Saudi Arabia was incredible. I'd never, I, I could just list them all now. That's pretty much what I'm doing, isn't it? <laughs> but I think the variety has been really cool. 
That's really cool. And yeah, so when you won in Greenland, I mean, that walk me through that that final race and and really just winning. I mean, you and Timmy ended up jumping in the water, so that that for a little bit of a celebration. Yeah, I mean, it was it was one of those weekends where so it started the weekend. I think in Q one we actually stopped on track. I mentioned earlier some of the reliability kind of developments with the car, and we had we had one of those issues where Timmy into the braking zone of the pit zone, the car just switched off, and he tried to do some power cycles, and it took a while to come back on. So we lost. I think it was almost like five minutes. So we were thinking, oh, you know, our qualifying is going to be rubbish. We then managed to have really um, consistent runs for the next couple, and we ended up in a in a semi final semi final two, which was, in my opinion, the hardest semi final because it was us versus Apt versus Rosberg, so really fast drivers. And I remember it was so it was Timmy and Johan on the start um, alongside Yuta. So it was the two guys, and obviously Yuta. I think Yuta had a good start, but she, she they lost. I think something went wrong with the car, like a drive shaft went or something. And then we saw this big battle between Timmy and Johan, as always we do in Rallycross. And I was thinking, oh no, like it's just semi-finals, guys. And they're going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And I think Johan came in first to the switch zone. And then I went, but I knew that, and I didn't know at the time that Matthias had a problem. Like all I'm thinking is, oh, Matthias Ekstrom is one of the fastest drivers here. He's gonna be coming up behind me. Like, you know, I've really got to get on the pace. And of course, I've got Molly in front of me as well. So I'm thinking, okay, how how am I going to do this? And so we went out pretty close out of the switch zone and we did the first kind of sector. And then my engineer was saying, you're catching her, you're catching her, you're making up good time. And I was like, in the car, I felt quite calm and I, I didn't feel like I was pushing too much. And I knew that Matthias was dropping off behind. So I was like, oh, okay, okay, you know, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. And then, um, yeah, I ended up I ended up coming up quite close behind her and just kind of overtaking. So we ended up winning our semi-final, which was amazing. And I think that was a real confidence boost for us as a team because this is coming off the back of a race in Senegal where we struggled so much. I mean, it was like, it was one of those race weekends where we just, we couldn't find a good feeling. We were really struggling with kind of setup and we were just slow. And it was, it was just for both of us, it was a real, we knew that we could be a lot faster than we were and we just weren't able to de- deliver that. So we had to do a lot of work and a lot of research kind of between that onto how to make ourselves faster and how to get the kind of setup that we were looking for with this car. Because obviously we have to remember we're not, we don't have testing here. So our knowledge is in the races and both, you know, Timmy and I are not coming from Dakar, which is quite similar to these cars. It is a bit of a challenge. And we managed to get there in Greenland and that win for us was like, okay, we, we know we can be quick now. And I think we, you know, we had good pace in qualifying as well. And then, so then I'm thinking, oh no, I'm going into the final now. And it's me, I'm starting this race. Bearing in mind, I come from rally. So I'm, I'm much used to more being on my own. So for me, optimum is like running second after Timmy's bought it in. Cause then I can kind of base it off other people, but taking it onto the first corner is not my, you know, actually, do you know what now it's my favorite part of the race? Weirdly, I absolutely love it. And really? I've done a lot of since with Timmy I've been training and something about the adrenaline I just absolutely love it but because of of how we got into the semi-final and because of the point system it was well it's actually it's so it's this thing called grid play so fans can vote to put their favorite driver on pole and I don't know why but I think other people had gifted their votes to kind of other underdogs and stuff so we'd ended up with not a lot of votes and so we were on the worst position on the grid so you've got kind of the people that are kind of at the top of the t- championship on the left going into the first corner so as as you would call it pole I'm right on the outside but because also this this track hasn't been run yet that line hasn't been run yet for any of the qualifiers or practice it hadn't been bedded in so it's just like yes. rough bumpy terrain like when you consider that our motors are cutting out every time the wheel is in, in contact with the ground imagine us going over a bump five meters into the start of a race you're losing power instantly compared to your competitors next to you so we were sort of 
in our heads, we didn't really think we'd have that good a start because we just knew what our, our line was looking like. And we were allowed to go and look at our line and kind of dust it out of it. And me and Timmy going and looking and trying to like kick some of the sand out of the way to try and even it up. It was just an impossible mission because they tried to change the track slightly for that start. They said to us, you can do track walk. And I was going with Timmy and he's like the master of the first corner in rally cross. And I said to him, hey, like, how do I how do I do this, Timmy? Just tell me, like, I want to learn everything from you. And he said, at the end of the day, Katie, if you stay flat out from turn, in, from through turn one and through turn two, you'll come out first at, on that long straight. And I was like, what, stay flat out? I was like, really? It doesn't look like it's flat out. He's going, yeah, no, 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 it'll be flat out. It'll be flat out. And I was like, okay. And then, so I'm sat on the start line in the final and I'm thinking, you know what? This now or never, isn't it? I've just got to stay flat out. I've got to stay flat out. And, and it was one of those moments where I sat there and it was like three, two, one, go. And as I went, I could feel myself going over the bumps and I just thought, oh no, and the car's kicking all over the place and I'm struggling just to keep it in a straight line. But I was like, it's flat out, it's flat out. So I just stayed flat out. And I ended up managing to come out first out of turn two. And I'm there I am. And I'm like, <laughs> I've passed all the guys. I'm in front of everyone that was on pole. And, I, and it was like a real, oh, wow, okay, I'm here. And so we, we said, okay, if that if it comes to that, press high. Boost. So obviously we get hyper boost, which is this button that we can press to give us extra power for four seconds. I think it takes it up to 400 kilowatts. So I pressed it, but I was so, I wanted to press it so early because obviously I wanted to make the most of the straight. I pressed it just before I went over a bump. So then I've, I've pressed it as I've gone over a bump. So my wheels aren't in contact with the ground anymore. So I'm basically using it while I'm in, I'm just wasting it. I'm in the air. I'm not, I can't, like, the wheels aren't going to go any faster because I'm not on the ground. By the end of the straight, Loeb had come up my inside, and I think Molly had as well. And then we're all battling it out into the first first corner. But I managed to stay really close behind Molly. Like we, even when we came back into the end of the lap, I came in. I, I was I was breaking, and I break later than her into the pit zone. And I remember thinking, "Oh no, I'm breaking so loud. I'm actually going to push her into the zone and like get a penalty." Because I remember thinking I was so close behind her, and we had this pit zone limits pit pit, pit speed limiter on the steering wheel. So we press it, and then you stay flat out at 30 kilometers an hour. And I'm going around the corner, and I'm thinking, "Oh no, I'm actually going to have to lift because she's not. She's I'm." I'm here. She wouldn't be able to turn across me to go into her pit zone, her kind of pit changeover area. So I actually had to lift in the pit zone, which feels like the biggest crime ever because you're obviously <laughs> trying to get past pit time. And now I had to lift to kind of like play happy families and let her pass in front of me so I could go into my zone. And then anyway, we had our, our switch over and Timmy ended up coming out in front because obviously X44 had had a puncher as well. And then I couldn't watch the rest of the race. I was, if I'm driving, I can deal with it. When Tim, when, when our fate was in Timmy's hands, that was it. I was actually stood. So we stand in the command center, which is this kind of area where you can watch the TV and the engineers and team managers are in there. And I wasn't watching the screen because it was Timmy versus Johan just doing the most ridiculous overtaking maneuvers and jumps and like this crazy stuff that I was just not, <laughs> I just couldn't watch it uh, until the end, until they, I heard like the engineer, he was sort of saying like, oh yeah, you're fine now, you're fine, you've got a big gap because Johan's car obviously shut off. He did a massive jump and I think like smashed the front of the car into all of the cooling system and everything. Ooh. It just kind of was just way too much. I mean, it was cool footage, but it was a huge jump. And so, yeah, we ended up, we ended up taking the win and it was like a, yeah, it was an amazing feeling. And we ended up jumping in the glacier water, which was, it was freezing, but it was really worth it. <laughs> That's incredible. I mean, what, what a race and what an experience. And I think a lot of that is missed when you're not in the car or in that experience, you know, that they try and cover it as best they can, but you know, you don't feel that what's in the car, that, that tension around every corner or why going flat out through turn one and two actually mattered. I think that's so interesting. Wow. For you, do you 
where do you kind of see yourself fitting more into this position that you've been in where you've been able to be an advocate for climate change? You do a lot of mentorship for young women in sport. You know, how do you try and spread your message now that you're, you know, you're in this position of you're a racing driver in a series that's getting a lot more attention. What is that like for you and and how you want to further your impact off the racetrack? Yeah, I think, I think like in terms of creating a a kind of platform for women in sport I think it's incredible that you know we've had the girls mixing it in with the guys as I say into the first corner it was like two guys two girls and one guy and that was like you know we I don't really think we've seen that before not to that caliber not with like Seb Loeb you know into into a, a race series I think it's been cool that it hasn't been a big segregation between the girls and the guys in this championship which I think it was people were kind of expecting that they were expecting the guys to be out the front and then the girls were kind of bringing up the rear and I think it's been cool that it hasn't necessarily played out like that. And that the girls are, you know, noticeably, and myself included, we're just having the, I think that's one thing people forget. Like the girls haven't got as much experience in the championship as the guys generally, because, you know, the guys are nine-time world rally champions. And we haven't really got that among the girls. And I think actually just the experience of being having the same access to engineers and, and development and driving as the guys, for me, I feel like I've improved massively over the season. And I know I'm a lot younger than probably the rest of the field, but I think it's kind of a general feeling is that everyone's, you know, improving as this goes on. So I think it's important from our side as, as girls to support each other and not to create it like, oh, who's who's going to win the title? It's not really about that. You know, it's about showing the norm of, of female motorsport. You know, it's, it's normal to have a, a few girls at the top. It doesn't need to be, you know, you don't look at Formula One and think, oh, which one driver is going to make it because they're there and there's, you know, that everyone's got kind of different qualities and different teams. So I think the most important thing for us to do is to work on like collectively working together from that sense and also from my side as well is to not take my eye off the ball in terms of the driving you know I think the, the biggest message that you can have to younger girls out there is to see someone successful doing what they're maybe looking at doing so it's almost one of those things where the actions speak louder than words from that front so that's always been my focus It's what I've wanted to do so it's really cool that that kind of where they go hand in hand together obviously you say how do you keep up your voice and I think doing stuff like this you know podcasts um chat doing kind of media stuff on events we have a lot of media that come out to the events from lots of different countries some people I even take for rides in cars which is really fun yeah just I, I work a lot with girls on track as well which is the women in motorsport commission meeting young people and yeah just kind of chatting to people I guess having the time to speak to people and and give words of encouragement that's really cool. Did you feel that you were, I guess, going to be in that position when you became a racing driver? I mean, it w- I know it was kind of kind of your goal, but now that you know you have people looking up to you and and watching what you do and are inspired by you, I mean, how does that feel for you on your end? Yeah, I never expected it to be honest with you. So when you say like, um, oh, you know, do you feel like a role model or whatever? Mm-hmm. No, I, you know, it's not what I don't <laughs> think I feel like that because to what to you, it's just been a normal progression of you know how you've mm-hmm. gone into the sport. But I realize how much of an impact it has. Even on my first rally, when I was 17, I went to a European Championship in Belgium and I'm stood waiting to go over the start line. And I had young girls coming and asking me for my autograph and my photos. And I was trying to say to them, oh, I think you've got the wrong people. Like, you know, the people at the front are up there. And it, it made me realize just turning up was enough to have shown them that it's possible. So then I realized how much of a gap we have in our sport and how much work has to be done, really. But yeah, I think I think it is important. It's, I, I had a, a young girl in the Czech Republic that I'll always remember. I, it was a middle of nowhere, really remote area. And she was on the road section, so the liaison between the stages. And I remember on the recce, she was stood outside with a poster with my name on. And I stopped and I chatted to her. And, you know, I had no idea how she knew who I was. I was one of the only girls competing in the rally. But there's like 150 drivers in there. 
And then when I came back on the race, she was out there with her mom and they had a new banner and, and she had a little disposable camera. This is like a tiny town in the middle of the Czech Republic. She had a little camera and she gave me this poster and I kept it with me and she'd written her address on the back of it. And so when I got home, I'd send her some, you know, some hero cards that I had. I think I sent her some of my gloves or whatever. And uh, we were pen pals for a bit. And it was like a really cool story because, yeah, you just wouldn't imagine that, you know, how does she even know who I was? It was a really cool, yeah, it was a cool moment. That's incredible. And and how humbling too, at the same time, to be able to just realize the, the power that you have through sport and, and the impact that you're able to have. That's, it's super cool. Do you remember your first quote unquote sustainable purchase you ever made? And I know that's, that's a little bit off topic on racing and, and it's meant to be a blindside question for sure. Yeah. Do you remember? I'm going to say like a, a coffee cup. It's got to be. It's, yeah. I think, I mean, yeah, it's got to be probably a water bottle something like that not nothing big <laughs> but yeah. I, I haven't out. my first purchase wasn't like an electric car by the way <laughs> but I think that's the point though we were actually having this discussion the other day and it was like before I got involved with this championship I had this kind of guilt around you know being sustainable because I'm thinking oh you know I haven't converted my house to run off you know fully solar panels I don't drive an EV every day so therefore I'm really bad for the environment and might as well not recycle mm-hmm. and all of this I think it's really easy to spiral like that but actually it's about doing what you can when you can and making those decisions on a daily basis isn't it and I think sometimes people feel as soon as I start you know if I'm with my friends or whatever as soon as I start talking about sustainability everyone kind of feels like you know you're judging them for not for not doing more but I think the Mm -hmm. point is none of us are perfect and we're all learning we're all progressing at our own rate and you know we need to know that it's it's urgent but we need to not like kind of guilt people into it I think it's the biggest thing so actually extremely is cool in that way because they have a program which is called count us in and there's a leaderboard which is actually not just for the racing obviously we have that but then there's a leaderboard for teams and it's a sustainability leaderboard so you could do something like say for example I walk to work instead of driving my car I could you can go online and each different kind of move or you know purchase if you're buying an electric vehicle it's got points for how it ranks on the sustainability chart and after you say that you've pledged that you've done that you can actually award your points to your favorite team and so then we have this table at the end of the year and we're going to have like a trophy for I think of the most sustainable team from that side to encourage fans to get involved that way as well that's super cool. And I, I love that you touched on that. You know, we're doing the best that we can. That was kind of the point of, you know, really starting this podcast was like, look, you don't have to make all these drastic changes and and completely change your life and sell everything you own and, you know, make those huge. It's all about the little tiny things that you can do every single day in your routine. And it doesn't have to be big efforts, but if everybody does effort, that's where big impact is made. And that's always been the objective of this. And I love that you touched on that just because it's, it is so important because I think a lot of times in the industry, it's, it's so a guilt tripping mentality, like, oh, you're not buying the right thing, you know, but if you're buying something sustainable and it, and it lasts only six months, you're not actually that sustainable because you're having to buy something else. So, you know, I think there's a, there's a balance that everybody's trying to strike and it's really just about being open and, and allowing people to just kind of find their own path and walk their own walk their own path to be able to be more sustainable and just kind of give them the options. I completely agree. And not, not going with what's kind of fashionable. I had an, uh, an example the other day, I was working at COP26 and I was mm-hmm. thinking, okay, what do I wear? And then I had a moment where I was, I was having a conversation with my sister and I was like, oh, I need to go and buy something from like a sustainable designer you know I don't really have what have I got my wardrobe that I can wear that's suitable for that event and then I had a moment where I thought hang on if someone's going to judge me because I'm not wearing something sustainable but I've gone out and bought something new when I don't need to buy something new just to say it's sustainable when I could wear something that okay I might have bought three years ago when 
you know, I wasn't that aware of how my clothes were being made or in, you know, how sustainable it was, but I could wear it. I, it's there in my wardrobe now. So if I throw it out, it's just going to go to waste. And I had this moment where I thought, God, we're just trying to tick so many bo- boxes to please other people to, to make it look like we're behaving a certain way. It's yeah, it's kind of, I guess that's the thing with social media versus reality and not taking it too seriously, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's making those choices of like, do I really need that new thing just because it's more sustainable, whatever it is. Yeah. It's, it's kind of an internal conversation that I think a lot of people are starting to have with themselves. And they're kind of like, well, if I buy something that's going to last, you know, 30, 40 years, that's pretty sustainable. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. What is your favorite place? And I think maybe this year may have brought that up, brought that about, but what is your favorite place on earth to be, to enjoy nature? Oh, that's a tricky one. I love traveling. That's really hard because I love, I think the ocean is always really humbling for me, just being in the water, like swimming. And I hadn't done that for a while. And then when I did it this summer, I was like, oh God, I forgot how good this feels to just like swim in the sea. I think, yeah, woodland as well for me is amazing. I'm lucky that I live right next to a woodland. So I can walk my dog in there and just kind of, I think it's really grounding. Hug a tree. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I, I grew up across the street from a redwood forest in California and you go right across the street and you're just, you're humbled. It's such a cool experience. Yeah. Definitely. So how can people kind of get involved with you, follow Extreme E, Andretti United, connect with you? I mean, what's what's kind of the best way for people to kind of get involved and, and take steps? I think on YouTube, they have behind the scenes episodes called, oh, I can't remember what it's called now, but they, or maybe they're not even published yet. I don't know. We've been filming them, so I don't know if they're out, but on YouTube, Extremely's YouTube's quite good. Um, they ha- they're on everywhere, TikTok, Instagram. I think probably from a team side, Andretti United Instagram is probably where to get our updates and obviously mine and Timmy's social media as well. I'm trying to do it. My YouTube is showing stuff, not like, the, you know, the race stuff because everyone can watch that. Or maybe you can't, maybe I should be showing the <laughs> racing, but I'm more trying to focus on behind the scenes so the stuff that you'd want to see if you you know like life what's life really like with us at the races that kind of thing so that's what i'm trying to put out every race as well on my own youtube channel cool well katie thank you so much for just taking the time diving through all this enjoy honestly the rest of your week the rest of the season good luck and i'm super pumped to see what happens in the future oh thank you so much and thanks for having me on i've really enjoyed being a guest it's been great awesome Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Sustainable Goat. Check out the Andretti United Extreme E team on their site, social media, and check out the Extreme E series on YouTube to see some of the highlights from season one, because season two next year is going to go even bigger. Also, thanks again to Katie for being a part of the show. She has a great Instagram and YouTube channel that gives you a behind the scenes look at what it's like to be a racing driver at the highest level of motorsport. And if you've been enjoying these episodes, share your favorite one with a friend or post it on social media. Your support goes a long way and the more the community grows, the more impact that we can have on the world around us. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Sustainable Goat.